0: I got to get to the right chapter. We'll start with verse. We, we finished up on verse 30 or 35 last week in review. So there'll be some more review and we may make it to some new stuff this morning too. We'll start up in uh, verse 31 and read through the end of chapter. Daniel chapter two, verse 31. Remember the king was dreaming, was sleeping and had a dream. And, uh, he challenged his so- soothsayers to both tell him what the dream was, and then interpret it, and none of them could, so he was going to have them all killed, and Daniel, if you will, by God's grace, came to the rescue, and in verse 31, we, we begin to see the setting for the interpretation of the dream. Verse 31, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, <clears throat> that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You, the king, continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed and All at the same time, it became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. And after you there will be an, arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So, like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces." And in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men But they will not adhere to one another, even as the iron does not combine with the pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold... The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So last week there was a question asked um, about one of the people that I've been using at their, their systematic theology, Robert Culver, if he believed that the millennium was a thousand years. And... Uh, First of all, as this person who asked the question reminded me, we need to be more concerned about the text of Scripture than what Robert Culver says, but it was interesting what Culver said. Now, I did read through, I've been studying Culver, I couldn't find any place in his teaching where he says, oh, by the way, the millennium means a thousand years. But every time he references it, he's talking about a thousand years. So I'm just going to assume what seems most evident from the study of his theology that he believes what the text says and I want to ask you in Revelation chapter 20, where it says that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. How many of you think that's a thousand years? Very good, very good. I know the ones that you didn't raise your hand. You just don't raise your hands in public. That's fine. It's a thousand years. God, the the, the funny thing about literal understanding the Scripture from a an historical, literal, grammatical concept is that when we decide that something is not literal, it had better be because the Lord Jesus Christ said something like this. The kingdom of heaven is like and not our own decision. The Scripture needs to be interpreted interpreted grammatically, historically correct and literally unless the Scripture tells us that it is not literal at this point. And so when the Bible talks about a thousand-year reign, I'm going to be coming from the position that it means 999 years plus 12 months in our, form of, in our form of reckoning. So if there's no questions beyond that, I'm gonna, we're just going to move into verse 30. Yes? There's an old saying, if literal sense makes perfect sense, all other sense If Brian gave us a... Let's see if I can repeat that correctly. If literal sense makes perfect sense, then all other sense is nonsense. Okay. No, it wasn't me that came up with that. (laughs) Um, it's like the old saying, you know, you know, I'm pro life except. No, you're not. I'm for the second amendment except. No, you're not. So shut up. (laughs) Okay. Now he's getting mean. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will interpret we will tell its interpretation before the king. Now, at this point, don't you think Nebuchadnezzar was sitting up and taking notice? Because he actually told him what his dream was. Now, I don't know how that worked out. I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar had completely forgotten it. And as Daniel brought it to his mind, it came to mind. Or if he remembered it, my opinion is that he—he. it's just like dreams I've had. I remember some of it, some of it, and if someone... If I see something happen that was deja vu for the dream, it kind of brings it back, and then I begin to remember more of it. I am of the opinion that Nebuchadnezzar remembered his dream because if he didn't, why did he ask the wise men to tell him it? He wouldn't have known if they were telling him it or not if he didn't remember it. But he remembered it, and Daniel reiterated it or restated it to him perfectly. So now I believe Nebuchadnezzar is leaning forward on his throne. And so Daniel... He will tell us interpretation. Daniel first described the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. This would give him credibility for what was to come. Nebuchadnezzar had never been around a wise man like this. Daniel accurately and specifically related to the king the dream that he had, and he knew it. Why did Daniel use the pronoun, though, we, instead of I? Was he referring to himself and God? Or was he referring to his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Or did he use the narrative, we, due to his inherent humility? This is most likely the reason. Daniel has, from the beginning, stressed to the king that any remembrance, any interpretation was going to be coming from Jehovah God, not from Daniel. Because remember, he said, "No, I have no better wisdom, or understanding than any other man. What I'm about to tell you is from the Lord God himself, not me. He was not promoting himself. Verse 37, you, O king, and here's where he started, and we, let me see if I can remember where we were when we left off those many months ago. Oh, yeah, this right here in front of me, July 26th, until the world ended. (laughs) The world ended July 26th. Yeah. Pretty close, yeah, okay, yeah. No, we still had food in our refrigerator. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. So Daniel refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings. Critics have seized on this as an improper title that Daniel should never have used. It is, in fact, accurate, though. At that time, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful king on the known earth. The kingdoms that followed were generally divided and controlled by more than one monarch. Only Nebuchadnezzar, during this period of time, controlled his kingdom individually. Everyone answered to him in Babylon. And he had subsets, prefects underneath him, but he chose those, and they still answered to him. He was the supreme authority of Babylon when he ruled, and his word was law. <laughs> the reference to God being the God of heaven is truly intentional. The Babylonians believed that their gods came from the earth. They used mountains to represent their gods as the power that those gods had. In fact, the name of their main god, Marduk, meant the great mountain. They believed all of the gods came from the sacred mountain on earth, which they called the mountain of the lands. Daniel fearlessly refers to the Lord God as the only, as the God of heaven, only as the God of heaven. He wanted to be sure that Nebuchadnezzar understood that the true God was not bound to the earth nor did he come from the earth and he was actually he was the creator of the earth and separate from it not like their god who was an who was a a result of the earth nebuchadnezzar could not miss the fact that daniel was telling him that he did not attain his kingdom on his own rather that it was given to him by the god of heaven and that that same god had given him power strength, and glory. These were momentous and even dangerous things for someone to say to a king who had the power of life and death, instantaneous life and death, over every subject that he ruled over. He could simply just point to the person and his executioner would take that person's life. Any questions or comments about that as we move on? Verse 38, And you're the the king of kings. To whom the God of heaven has given, and wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar's rule was complete. He had sole authority to proclaim life or death for any citizen of Babylon. Babylon. While he did not rule over the whole earth, literally, he did rule completely over that part that God had put under his control. The reference here is not to universal rule but to complete rule over the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar had. He was sole authority in Babylon and in all the surrendered conquered lands that he had conquered. He was as Walvard said in his commentary in supreme authority in so far as any human ruler could be the king was the head of gold as a personification and symbol of the babylonian empire <laughs> the reference to being over the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky refers to the annual ceremony that was held in babylon in which the reigning king again was again enthroned as earthly representative of the main babylonian god marduk the epic of creation would be recited prior to recited prior, would be recited, excuse me, in honor of Marduk, reminding the king that he was that God's representative. It also was instructive to note that this intimate knowledge of Babylon and its related mythology gives credence to the idea that Daniel was the author of this book. He knew what was going on in Babylon. He understood its history. He understood its underpinnings and especially when he wrote this when he was probably 80 85 years old he would have learned these things in his 3 year instruction period and then they would have been in, they would have been firmed up in his mind over the the ensuing 60 years of work in babylon verse 39 and then we'll see if there's any questions after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you so we have the the kingdom of gold the head of gold and then the next is the 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 chest torso, I guess, which um, there will arise another kingdom inferior to, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. In this short declaration regarding the second two kingdoms, critics have attacked the normal interpretation that these two kingdoms were Medo-Persia and Greece. Daniel later names the two succeeding kingdoms. So, um, slide 54. Daniel five twenty eight. Perish, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Daniel 8, 20 and 21. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And then Daniel eleven two. Now I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. The succeeding kingdoms were inferior in rulership. Quality, but not in size. The media kingdom, medio Medo-Persian kingdom, was larger than Babylon, and Greece was even larger, and the Roman Empire was the largest. Uh um, next slide, 55. So here's the um some relative sizes. The Medo-Persian Empire is considered the most powerful of the ancient powers. At its height during the realm of Darius I the Great, it controlled more than 2.9 million square miles. Uh of land and spanned three continents asia africa and europe its control extended westward into india and reached westward er, extended eastward into india and westward into greece its capitals were persepolis and susa with its kings sometimes residing in babylon it is estimated that in 480 bc the persian empire had 50 million people living under its control this huge amount was roughly 44% of the world's population at the time, making it the largest world power ever in terms by population percentage. History verifies, however, that the successive kingdoms had neither the organization nor the central control of the Babylonian Empire. Next slide. At the height of its power... The Greek Empire, after its conquest of the entire Persian Empire, the empire comprised 2.1 million square miles spanning three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. At its great extent, the Greek Empire included the entire areas of the Persian Empire, the ruins of the Persian Empire, modern territories of Iran, Turkey, parts of Central Asia, Pakistan, Thrace, and Macedonia, much of the Black Sea coastal regions, Afghanistan, Iraq, southern, northern Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and all significant population centers of ancient Egypt as far west as Libya. So that was the, the next, the next, uh, kingdoms, giant kingdoms, but they did not have the control, the rule that Nebuchadnezzar had, the single person rule over everyone in his empire. Any questions or comments about that? Yes a remark about how much power he had, and then not long after that, he's grazing like a, a cow in the field. Yeah, when when God decides something will happen, it happens. So comparative, I didn't do the math, but somewhere, if 44% of today's population would be roughly 3.5 to 4 billion people if it was the same today. That would be one ruler over 3.5 to 4 billion of the population of the world. <clears throat> Verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these powers. Break all these in pieces, excuse me. Break all these in pieces. Next slide. That's not very big, but at its height, the Roman Empire encompassed about 1.93 million square miles. With a more republican form of government, it did not have the central control that Babylon had for much of its existence. Again, size does not imply superiority. And in fact, one secular website even remarked this. Quantity is certainly not quality. Despite encompassing an incredible 5 million plus square kilometers by 117 AD, that vast expanse surely wouldn't be enjoyed for too much longer. As the empire expanded the efficiency of its institutions contracted to the point that by 284 AD it was a, it was vulnerable to external attack and eventually collapsed there's a lot of reasons i've been reading a little bit in uh the rise and fall of the roman empire and uh studying not necessarily studying but reading some of his comments gibbon's comments and there's just a tremendous number of reasons that the roman empire eventually compl- collapsed um and uh, maybe we'll we'll look at some of those as we go along but uh, a lot of different opinions on that from the precision from the perspective of efficiency a single king ruling a kingdom is indeed superior now just as an aside here you kind of hope he's a beneficent king <laughs> and not a tyrant but uh odds are because of human nature If you have a single person ruling over such a vast government, he will be corrupted. I think it was, I can't remember who it was that said it, but power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's a true story. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why God removed Nebuchadnezzar for a while. He was getting more and more self-important, self-indulgent. And so God removed him for a short short time. We'll, We'll see that when we come to it. So this was the perspective of the ancients, that single rule was far more efficient. Nations that gave more power to the people were considered inferior. In the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the rulers did not have the power to simply annul a law like Nebuchadnezzar did. Fast forward to the Roman Empire and the ancient primitive republic conferred even more power to the people or to the people at least in its middle years. Rome certainly crushed all opposition and ruled the ancient world with a rod of iron. Critics have attacked this section, insisting that the first kingdom was, of course, Babylon, but the second and third kingdoms were Persia and Media, respectively, as if they were separate kingdoms. This would make Greece the fourth empire and eliminate the Roman empire, thus negating the need for a prophetic element. And remember why they did this? Because too many prophecies came true. Nobody could predict stuff like that. Therefore, this was a history. <clears throat> As Walvoord notes in his commentary, though, next slide, but these critics did not take, do not take into consideration that Rome had already taken the Western Mediterranean, subdued Greece, and parts of Western Asia. While they might be expected to claim that a writer in the second century B.C. might have guessed that Rome was the fourth empire. They are unwilling to admit that even a spurious, a fake Daniel writing in the second century could refer to the Roman empire. For it is obvious that apart from prophetic insight, he could not have predicted the event, the extent of the empire and its fall in the way Daniel prophesies. Daniel clearly predicted the rise and the fall of these empires hundreds of years prior to their happening. The critics attack that again because they can't believe someone would be that accurate. Therefore, it must be a history. Even if it was written as a history, it would be difficult for Daniel. He would have still lived in the time that the Roman Empire was still extant and had not fallen yet, and yet he predicted its fall. Slide 59, next one. Again, the basic difficulty is that the critics cannot admit that the fourth kingdom is Rome without attributing a genuine prophecy even to a second century Daniel. Even had Daniel written in the second century, as I just mentioned, he would have still been predicting the fall of the empire he was living in hundreds of years later. But many problems disappear when Daniel is recognized as a prophecy rather than pseudo-prophecy. The revelation of chapter 2 does not give sufficient detail to identify the kingdoms completely, but when this revelation is coupled with that of chapter 7 and 8, the identification becomes clear clear and unmistakable. So our challenge to those critics is, read the rest of the book. Read the whole book, please. Over the centuries, much symbolism has been attributed to the figure that cannot be substantiated. For example, the chest uh, the chest and the abdomen representing the kingdom of Medo-Persia in the eyes of some represent the seat of affection of the figure. And from this they have inferred that Cyrus the Persian was a noble man who had compassion for the kingdom of Israel. This is indeed reading too much into Scripture. This is what happens when we read things into Scripture that are not there. So, (laughs) an important distinction to be made, however, is that the third kingdom ends with the upper part of the two legs and that this indicates that the third kingdom would territorially embrace both east and west. This would set the stage for the fourth kingdom, which goes unnamed, but is most certainly the Roman Empire, which did indeed conquer far west as well as the eastern part of the European continent. Rome had the strength ascribed to iron. The Roman legions conquered every nation they came into contact with for many centuries. The verse indicates that the fourth kingdom would bear harsh rule as it crushes and shatters all things. Romans were so harsh that they even treated their own people harshly. Remember at the time of Jesus when it was surmised that maybe when Jesus rose from the dead and that Roman cohort who had guarded the tomb, they knew their, their lives were forfeit. They were going to die because somehow the tomb the seal was compromised on that tomb. They were set in guard over it, and the Roman Empire had a history of the rulers dealing very harshly with their own people when they failed in their appointed tasks. That's how harsh that empire was. The verse indicates that the force kingdom would, would, would bear harsh rule. Rome did. Edward Gibbon, in his history of the Rome, wrote, he wrote this, The empire of the Romans filled the world. And when the empire fell into the hands of a single person, the world became a safe and dreary prison for his enemies. To resist was fatal, and it was impossible to fly. When one person bears rule over large numbers of people, or even in many cases over a small number of people, they become harsh and and evil, though they were already evil. But that evil begins to manifest itself in very harsh ways. And so the later Roman rulers, um, Caligula and uh, all of those after him, well, even before Nero, it was their world prison. That's what the people of the Roman Empire lived in, was a gigantic prison. It was a safe place, but it was dreary. Robert Culver, in his commentary on Daniel, Daniel in the Latter Days, notes that two millennia ago, Rome gave the world ecumenical unity. How many churches are looking for ecumenical unity today? The unity of churches, Catholic and and all the others. Rome gave the world ecumenical unity, which the League of Nations and the United Nations organizations have sought to revive in our time. The modern attempts are not original at all, as many of our contemporaries suppose, but are revivals of the ancient Roman ideal, which never since the time of Augustus Caesar has been wholly lost. It is probable that the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and the peace of, the peace of a well-ordered prison with plenty of iron gates, steel doors, train guards, and high walls is the best will ever, the world will ever achieve until Jesus comes. There's no room for a theophany or a theocracy on this planet until the theos is here, until Jesus is here. Men cannot create a theocracy it will be a tyranny <clears throat> there is no sense in which the consolidated rule on earth is a good thing until it is the consolidated rule of the lord jesus christ thus men have sought have sought to ameliorate the powers of government by creating different kinds of governments that took away some of the powers of the executive and distributed them we have we had such a government in the united states we had such a government in the United States, which in its origin did an excellent job of spreading power in such a manner as to reduce the possibility of tyrannical rule. Men will always tyrannize if they are given the opportunity. And as it has been said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. trying to remember the name of the guy, Lord something. Anybody remember? Acton, Lord Acton. I had his first name, Lord. (laughs) Pardon me. His first name was Mr. There is no way any kind of theocracy can ever be good based on, on this planet until it is the theocracy of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And And thus, who are we to look to for our comfort? Not the ruler of the nation we live in, no matter who it is, even if it was a good person. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to the Father. We look to the Holy Spirit. They, the Holy Spirit is the comforter. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. Any questions about verse 40? That's a lot of stuff. Verse 41. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. The description Daniel gives to the first three kingdoms is rather brief. He spends a great deal of time, more time I should say, on the fourth kingdom, which is Rome. The idea here is that they would, be give, they would be open to vision in the kingdom, but rather... The idea here is not that they would be open to vision, but rather that throughout the kingdom there would, be, there would, not, there would not be the unity the monarchies have. Monarchies have much more unity because everybody knows they can be killed if they do something wrong. Um, places that are given um, much more freedom... May or may not have the kind of unity that a monarchy would, a forced monarchy has. The iron implies great strength, and the potter's clay implies, implies an admixture that would eventually compromise that strength. In the view of the ancients, the testimony of the strength of a kingdom was the kind of rule it had. If the kingdom was ruled completely by one person, those types of governments were considered the strongest. As history progressed, the governments of different kingdoms took different shapes. The single monarchical rule of Babylon developed into the oligarchical rule of Medo-Persia. This changed into the more democratic rule of Greece and further changed into the primitive republican form of government that Rome had. As Rome conquered more and more territories and brought those people into its fold, this had the effect of compromising Rome's strength. Then, more than anything... It was the lack of unity that resulted from Rome allowing different nations to retain their individualism even as they became Roman citizens. They didn't buy in to the Roman form of government. They kept their own individualism, and slowly but surely this compromised the Roman government, the Roman nation, I should say. The resulting division that came from this admixture of nations and peoples would have the effect of eventually undermining Roman rule. Verse 42 as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be brittle. Here Daniel expands on the previous verses, noting that the toes were also partly of iron and partly of pottery. Later we will see that the toes represent different kingdoms. Remember, there's more to this book <laughs> that answers some of the questions that come up in chapter 2. So, some of the kingdoms will be strong and some of them would not. What Daniel could have had in mind here was the different kinds of governments that would occur in the latter days, or he could have been referring to the inherent weakness that comes because government is composed of men with their own ambitions and desires. No matter the form of government, it's going to be ruined because men will compose it. <laughs> this planet would be a nice place if it wasn't because of men. No, one, don't misunderstand. I'm sexist, man. <laughs> It's a, it's a general term, general term. Mankind. You, I, I got to go home today. Much ink has been spilled on this section of Daniel. Some of it is fanciful. Some of it more down to earth and biblical. That almost sounds like an oxymoron down to heaven and biblical. We could spend weeks just looking at the different aspects of governments that have been explored as commentators exegete this very section. Suffice it to say that in the latter days during Gentile rule, it will be full of peoples and changes caused by men's experimentation with government. Next, I might have, let's go to the next slide. Next slide. One more. No, nope, that's that that last one was correct sorry about that since the text walford says this in his commentary he says since the text does not actually tell us probably the safest procedure is to to is to glean the interpretation from the meeting of the metals in the three preceding kingdoms keel writes as in the three preceding kingdoms gold silver and bronze represent the material of these kingdoms i.e. their people and their culture so the fourth kingdom iron So also in the fourth kingdom, iron and clay represent the material of the kingdom arising out of the division of this kingdom, i.e. the national elements out of which they are constituted and which will and must mingle together in them. While intermarriage may form an element of it, it is not necessarily the main idea. The important point is that the final form of the Roman empire will include diverse elements, whether this refers to race, to political orientation or to regional interests. And this will, Prevent the final form of the kingdom from having a real unity. It will be suffused with the differences that come from different kingdoms, different personalities, different nationalities involved in the different governments. There's ten governments on those two feet. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we come to it. We might have to study the book of Revelation after this. We'll have to see how that works out. Verse 43, and then I'll see if there's any questions. And in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as the iron does not, even as iron does not combine with pottery. This apparently points to the fact that in its final form as the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire would have an admixture that was susceptible to division and dissolution. This likely refers to the fact that the kingdoms controlled by men are inherently unstable. In the final days of the Roman Empire, both in the East and the West, as Rome rotted from within, the strength of Rome was dissolved by the differences within the kingdom that men had with one another. As Rome des- devolved step by step from a primitive republic into democracy and finally into socialism, it collapsed upon itself. Especially in the end there, when they were the, the, those in power were trying to give the people everything that they thought they wanted while controlling them in the most unusual ways whatever. Bread, you've heard of bread and circuses. We may be heading into that. What kind of bread do you like? I haven't been to the circus in a long time. So any comments or questions on up through verse 43? Yes. So in the final days of the Roman Empire, when the, the rulers were trying to control the people, they would give them food They gave them food. They took it from you and gave it to them. Does that sound familiar? And entertainment. Because as men become more venal, they're easily, more easily controlled by things that entertainment, that titillate them. So can you say NFL? And I love football. Don't misunderstand me. But today, I'd rather be watching high school teams. At least the ones that don't get involved in politics. All three of them. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Are you looking forward to that? Which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but itself, it will itself endure forever. It is most reasonable to assume that the kings spoken of here are those which would reign in the last days and that the kingdom of God will catastrophically destroy them and be set up permanently. One of the things that all of this has the effect of doing, all of this dissolution and instability and, uh, and from our perspective, the ability to observe how wicked men devolve more and more into wickedness is to make the church long for the Lord Jesus Christ, to love His appearing, to seek to glorify Him, and to let people know. Because the days are coming when it will be too late. The night is coming. We are still in the day. We must work. And uh so for me, some of what's been happening lately, as I get older and older, um, it makes me long for the days of the Lord Jesus Christ when everything will be settled, there will be no more tears, there will be nothing but constant glorification of Him and whatever He has planned for the millennia, the eons ahead. And it won't be singing with a harp and a in a crown on a cloud. That's a song, a nice song, but that's not what Scripture says. There'll be plenty to do, and it will be exciting. Verse forty-five. Inasmuch, you know, we're never going to make it through verse forty-five. We're never going. It's just not happening. Not not in this lifetime. So, as we go forward from here, as a church, it is our it is our delight and our duty, and our our by the grace of God to propagate not types of government, not better rulers, not more efficient methods of delivering to the people, but to propagate the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel. Men will not be changed from without. They will not. I can testify to that. They will only be changed from within, from the work of the Holy Spirit when he regenerates them and turns their eyes from darkness to light. And and all of this in Daniel is going to serve, as we study it together, a church that loves the Lord and loves the Word of God, is going to serve to remind and remind us and strengthen our resolve that the Scripture is the answer. The Scripture is the answer. Sola soul of Scripture, by Scripture alone, are men changed. By grace, by faith, through the Word of God. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.